Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hi, everyone. It's Nabil up here in the editing booth. In this episode, we continue talking to Tui Jorgensen and Kai Blinn about developing new protocols and software to track SARS-CoV-2 variants of interest. Okay, so maybe taking a step back, right? In terms of CT, how does your method work as a CT goes up, as the viral load goes down, or the samples become degraded? So that's a great question. Um, so CT, of course, is not just CT. So for example, the, the qPCR that's currently being run at DTU, it has seven dark cycles before starting to record CT. So like this changes the CT value. So with this system, this has been tested with by some of the hospitals to be around five uh, normal cycles because the annealing temperature is higher in those seven dark cycles. So that's about... So you have to, to the numbers I'm going to mention, you have to add about five cycles to get uh, another setup. Uh, but so basically we have uh, about 90% up until uh, CT30 with our system, CT35 with other systems that would translate to. Uh, and then it starts dropping off um, until, so we do uh, 45 cycles and uh, of, of, of uh, PCR in the, yeah, in our PCR and Samples that have a CT of 35 in our system, so 42 in other systems, only succeed in 25% of cases. But like those are edge cases, so extreme that they would generally not be called from the uh, qPCR either. So like these results, again, we are we have the luxury of not having to make the decision. We only report what we find. What's your cutoff for a positive? Do you say like a CT of 40, you know, like maybe the word is one viron? Yeah, we, we do not have one. So all samples that show any uh, any threshold of any of the targets in the normal qPCR, we sang a sequence. And the overall efficiency, so the first batch of 195 samples we had, had an overall efficiency, including 510 samples that only recorded uh, one target in the qPCR. So we had an efficiency of 85% in our Sanger setup. Have you done any limits of detection on your setup? No. So, but we have tracked, we have some like, so we have the CT values of these samples and we have uh, in the manuscript that will come out, we have a comparison of the the CT value and if we got a result or not. That's, I think it's pretty incredible that you might be indicating that the that your CT threshold might be very high, that you can detect very small numbers, uh, counts of genomes. Because I, just putting that in context, I mean, I think that a lot of people around the world have a, a threshold of CT30 or 29 or something like that for genome sequencing. Or a company that I talked with even said that they had to go as low as like 26 or 24. <laughs> But so that's also like depending on the qPCR setup that can be different. But I understand completely because like our efficiency is not high either when we get to those CTs. The beautiful thing is just that it's so cheap. 
Like it costs $5 to run a sample from end to end, including all plastware, including everything. So we don't care if it doesn't work. We care if it works. Can, can so, I comment on something in the paper also along these lines? I mean, we I guess we haven't gotten into the actual paper itself, but I really liked some of the language you put in there. Because <laughs> you, were, you were basically saying like, hey guys, this is 2000s technology. And it's the good stuff still works. The old stuff still works. And I, I, I really like how you kind of drove that home. And I think you're kind of driving that here in your language. Yeah, so that this was our approach. We have like my usual job. I, I, I haven't touched Sanger sequencing since I started doing my master's thesis in 2008. Like this is not normal for me to do Sanger sequencing. It's not my first or second or third choice. Like I do nanopore sequencing and Illumina sequencing, and I've done all parts of the process from extracting the DNA to pressing start on the NextSec machine and on the on the MinIons. And Kai and I just discussed it and figured that this would be the simplest thing that would work. And then we tried it. I mean, we I was actually a little bit embarrassed at first. And we ha have also gotten some laughs because this is there was somebody who wrote to me in, in joke uh, jokingly, welcome to 1995. And I, I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> so uh, contamination is a huge issue in our lab, um, particularly when we're doing so much PCR. And I'm wondering, could you walk me through how you handle your controls and how you detect contamination? Yes, so basically it's the same people who set this up as the people who work in the normal qPCR detection. So that means that they have all the all everything. It's the same. It's the same uh, reagents. It's the same people. It's the same rooms. So what we have is we have good separate physical separation of the samples. So the master mix is prepared in one room. The PCR is set up in another room. It is run in a third room and it is moved to new wells in a post PCR room. People who enter the post PCR room cannot go back to any of the other rooms. So, like we have, like a, like this lab is usually dealing with uh, animal diseases and animal disease detection. So they they are like their customers are very very dependent on them having a very clean setup and like the the least possible contamination. The way that we then detect if those contamination is, is just to have four uh, negative controls per sample that spread out randomly. And we have we have never uh, we have seen individual very rarely we see one position being uh, called as either a mutation or no mutation. But we've never seen a full length sequence from a negative control. Contaminations happen like that's like that happens in absolutely every system. But about we have minimized it in a lot of different parts of this chain. And do you run a positive control? We do not run a positive control. We have considered running a high titer positive control, but we have not uh, we have not done that. So that's actually not part of that has been suggested by SSI as well, but it has not we haven't implemented that now. But like so as like so in the PCR uh, the qPCR then you will actually need to analyze a negative result. But if we get a negative result here, we don't actually analyze it. We only analyze when we get a call. So I think it's less important to have positive controls than it is in the qPCR. So how much does your method cost? $5 per sample, including everything. And it is simpler than any other workflow. There's no new machines. There are no, there's no new enzymes. There's minimal handling time. And there's minimal analysis. And there's almost no data storage because it's really only 300 kilobytes per sequence that we get in. So like, there's no multiplexing, there's no demultiplexing, there's no assembly step. So a lot of the, the steps that usually take up a lot of uh, energy, even though they're not being talked about so much, simply don't exist in this setup. So it costs $5 and it is 
so simple that anybody who can do a PCR test can also run a variant screen this way. And how much hands-on time is there? Setting up one PCR and spending five minutes moving some of that product into a new plate. Wow, that's really quick. Yes, it's, it's, it is very, very, very quick and easy setup. Thought about deploying this elsewhere. Has anyone been in touch? I mean, I, I know it's very new, but uh, have you been talking to other people about maybe in just countries that are getting started with COVID? Yeah, so, so we had a meeting with the representative from uh, two uh, African countries a couple of weeks ago where I uh, uh, tried to convince, they have uh, Sanger sequencing in-house uh, both places in their COVID testing unit. And I tried to convince them that this would be, they could test all of their positive samples with no investment. Um, and I don't know if they have actually started it, but I would love to like spread the message. Like it's also like there's really no investment in starting this and we scale to full production in less than a week. So like it's, it's, it's really ridiculously simple and anybody who has resources to do PCR tests has resources to do this as well. That's awesome. Okay. okay, so you've got your software on GitHub and you've got a paper coming out on, I presume, BioArchive. Is that right? Uh, unfortunately not. So BioArchive said, no, thank you. Um, so it's MetaArchive, which, Meta which actually turned out to be a little bit of an issue because uh, in Denmark, this type of study, because it is completely anonymized data, like there's no personal tracking information in it. So we do not need an ethics approval for it. MetaArchive does require um, ethics approval. So that means that I now have had to write an ethics approval statement and ask the Danish ethic approval board to say that it's not necessary in Danish by Danish law. And then I need to state that in my submission to Meta Archive. Have you considered going to preprints.org or one of the other preprint servers? Uh, I have, but I have not, uh, I have not uh, done so. So um, yes, but I have. I have considered that, yes. But yeah, the protocol itself is actually up on protocols.io. So between that, the GitHub site, and I think there's a page on SSI that has the software so you can run it, right? Yeah. You, you're pretty much, I think that that's all anyone would require to get started, right? I don't think there's any additional yes. info. No, there's no information you need to get started, but seeing information on the actual calls on the results that this generates that is not uh, either of those places so like seeing that it works and how well it works that will be in the preprint i did notice that there is this web app from ssi that seems to be running the software uh, making it available to anybody could you tell us more about that part of our idea here was to have a method that was sort of as accessible as humanly possible um to get the whole thing off the ground, right? Because, I mean, as Tua said, we, we stood up the whole thing in like about a week. And that was sort of time that we could easily invest. But I mean, I also know that like usually when you you want people to use a piece of, of software, then you, of course, also need to spend some time maintaining it. And it was clear that even if you just wanted to roll it out here in Denmark, it was going to get rolled out at like the different hospitals and the different regional test centers and everybody. And a lot of these people don't have dedicated bioinformatics staff. So, I mean, all of the sort of getting set up, getting the dependencies installed and everything uh, needed to be as simple as possible, right? So, I mean... Can I add to that, that just running it command line would also be a challenge. Like this is this is a barrier that some people uh, are not going to, to make. Yeah, so... We, we have the command line tool and that's sort of what sort of um, 
I do all of the development on, and that sort of is is also um, sort of my preferred way of running it. But it was clear that this was not sort of end user compatible uh, for the people that we targeted this at. On the other hand, sort of my usual go-to solution for this would be to set up like a web service uh, where you can just upload the data and and run it. But of course, um, that also comes with the challenges because I mean hospitals are rightfully squeamish about uploading patient sample data to some random website, right? I mean, um, we could have built something that works within Denmark that would be sort of compliant with all the all of the requirements by, I don't know, hosting it at SSI in some internal network or something like that. But again, <clears throat> in order to make it sort of more widely accessible, um, sort of it, it was nice to have the option to go for another solution. And there's a small spin-off company from the SSI, as far as I understand, that basically builds like uh, bioinformatics environments by sort of transpiling whatever software you want to use into WebAssembly, and then you can run the whole thing in, in your web browser. So basically, they already had Bowtie and, and SAMTools um, binaries available in, in WebAssembly. And then for this pipeline, what they had to do was to go and build um, a Tracy um, WebAssembly library uh, to get Tracy in. And then I think they also have a Python interpreter. I would probably just have C Python transpiled to WebAssembly. And then that just runs the Python script. And I'm not sure how exactly their runtime works under the hood, so how they link the files and, and the input data and everything. But uh, I mean, in the end, it's like the command line script that runs within the browser in WebAssembly and then just uh, dumps out our standard out output onto the screen and creates uh, a zip file of like all of the results that we have um, that you can then like uh, download. But I mean, like the data never really leaves your computer, so it's really just uh, the browser making like the internal blob available um, via the download function. So basically, you That's can go amazing. to the website and I mean, though that is at like this this .com website, the actual data never leaves your system. But that's amazing. So essentially, you it it's uh, by opening the page, you're you're sort of downloading the app onto yeah. your running it in your browser, but all the data remains on your system. Yeah, which is fantastic. And um, I mean, this is the kind this is space age kind of technology. Yeah, this is uh, pretty amazing. Thing. I'm I'm always I mean like the the performance takes quite a bit of a hit doing this. So I mean, it takes like three to four minutes to run this on 100 samples instead of like 10 seconds, right? But I mean, for the convenience of not having to deal with any of the dependencies, and I mean, as a bioinformatician, you will know that sort of dependency handling is like the thing that you spend 80% of your time on, and then like you need to spend the other 80% on actually getting your job done. And, and here is sort of you take out like the dependency handling part of the work. And I mean, that's really uh, super convenient. And I mean, it's not like the most fancy interface ever. I mean, it's it's just like a couple of uh, input boxes where you can like put the zip file in and uh, select what reference you want to use or something like that. And then uh, you hit run and it comes back with a text box of the output, right? But I mean, it's it's workable and um, it uh, gets you the results within a couple of minutes, which I mean, again, for the, we're talking about an overall turnaround time of like around a day or two from I mean, or a bit more from, from swap to results. So, I mean, three, four minutes of runtime for the software is really not a big deal. Yeah. So the company that uh, set this up is called BioLib, 
Um, and I think they did a fantastic job. I think it's also worth uh, mentioning that Kais, it's kind of a, a the, the push of a button is kind of a joke in the bioinformatics communities, but this is really a push of a button. Like there's one button and you push it to start and then you get your result. So I think that it the, the button cells run, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously, obviously a very single purpose piece of software where you can do this, right? I mean, it like the, the simplicity wouldn't scale to a more complex analysis pipeline, but like particular for this kind of analysis and given the fact that the people who usually run it are sort of not computer people whatsoever, um, like the, the training required is very simple because as Tua said, it's really just like push one button, wait a bit, your results are there, you like take them and put them wherever they need to be entered, done. You guys are like really scaring me with the one button thing. I know you're saying that it's really easy, but then something happens and then it's it's not easy. I mean, it's not it's not uh, for all pipelines, right? I mean, it's, but for this particular one, you also don't have like a ton of options for the command line script, right? I mean, like there's a bunch of options that I basically built in because I thought they were kind of need to have, right? Um, so we, we started out with only looking at specific mutations and I, I saw that a couple of samples, we had like mutations in the position, but sort of not from the amino acid uh, to the, like, or not to the amino acid that people were interested in. So like the, the official sort of policy was we, we don't call them as we found that mutation, right? So, I mean, it's, it's like the P681 position has a couple of different mutations that are possible, or I think it's that one. And, and, um, there's like a histidine and an arginine or something like that. And like, initially we were only interested in the histidine. So if, if we found an arginine, we were, we're not supposed to report that. But I mean, there is a command line switch that says, well, I expected the histidine, but I found an arginine instead because I, I thought it was neat. But that was sort of me not being able to switch off the, the scientist brain, I guess. For, again, like for the public health angle of this, sort of um, like the use is very simple and like the less things there are to twiddle, um, like the, the less likely somebody is going to misuse it and get the wrong results, right? And I mean, at the end of the day, so from a public health perspective is sort of not isolating a person that should have been isolated or like not doing the, the contact tracing with sort of enough uh, vigor is, is like worse and like false positives are less problematic than false negatives and, and some of that, right? So again, it's a bit different to what you usually do when you sort of work in science. Yeah. One more thing about what you said too, is just, we might've talked about this, like even last year on this podcast, but like WebAssembly is kind of the future, I think for a lot of stuff to make sure things run. And um, I think that would be an interesting topic to focus on another time. I think exactly for the reasons that Kai was talking about that you can deploy the app without getting around installation on a system, getting around dependencies and the date, and you can assure the user that the data remains on their machine is a huge boon for public health applications. Obviously there's, I think there's a lot of work in terms of making it more efficient and that's just down to writing a better port of whatever for the, for the WebAssembly language. But, um, but you can write Rust, right, Lee? So you can do all of it. I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I mean, magical now. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really mainly interesting for the like external tools perspective, right? So, I mean, like um, if we had targeted WebAssembly from the start, I mean, I could e easily have rewritten like the Python pieces of code that I currently have for um, Rust, 
but that still would get you only so much, uh, like so far, right? Because again, we want to run Tracy, which is written in C. We want to run um, Bowtie, which is written in C++, and uh, SAMTools is in C++ as well, I think. So um, like that, you also need to support. And again, I mean, it's also for all the compiled languages, I, it's still pretty straightforward to get some WebAssembly. I think like LLVM now has a WebAssembly target. So, I mean, technically you can probably get everything from there into WebAssembly very decently as well. I mean, I must I mean, personally, I'm more impressed that they could just run like random Python script in WebAssembly and, and that worked. And of course, also all of the being able to pass the data around. So I, I think they have a slight patch set on top of the original script uh, in order to make that happen. So, I mean, like the, the callouts to uh, the external tools and where I use sort of pipes from from Bowtile into SAM tools and stuff like that, they they need to do something slightly different there. But um, there's a pull request, like a draft pull request on on the GitHub repository that basically has their change that. Um, so, I mean, we're not going to merge that because we still want to be able to run the standalone command line tool, but um, sort of it's, it's sort of out there in order to look at it and, and see what's happening. And of course, I mean, like all of the magic is happening in their proprietary backend. So I, I don't really know how that works, but I mean, it's it's pretty nifty. I, I fully agree. So actually this this is also the setup that we are using. So the BioLib uh, page is not only there for other people to use it. This is what the people who work in the pipeline day-to-day -day is using to analyze the results. So I think we have a couple of other installations as well. So I've talked to some people from I think Aarhus University, who were setting up something else uh, uh, there, and they're running everything on a cluster. So that's where the singularity images are coming from, because they were like, "Hey, uh, we'd like to run it like on our cluster, and like singularity is the most straightforward thing to do there." So here's a Docker file. Can you please add it? And um, I mean, the reason why it's in Bioconda is because um, when Tua got started and we were sort of playing with the prototypes that he had, uh, he was running on his Windows machine and sort of. Bioconda was the thing that he had set up. So it was just the easiest thing to like make sure that he could go ahead and try like a new version of the prototype. Um, if you could just go ahead and install all of the dependencies from, from Bioconda. And then, I mean, seeing how all of the dependencies were in Bioconda anyway, I figured sort of just getting Bioconda set up so you can like also install the tool itself from Bioconda uh, was pretty straightforward. And I mean, Bioconda has this Bioconda bot that basically picks up new releases when I do one uh, to PyPy and automatically does a new pull request. And I basically just need to go over and say, yeah, I did indeed like release a new version and I'd like to have that one in Bioconda as well. And basically just need to tell it, okay, it's fine. Merge the request, please. And then sort of with, within however long it takes for them to sort of build and roll out the new packages, it will also be available in Bio Bioconda. So again, it's it's really, as I mentioned before, right? To add like a new mutation that falls within our window, all we need is like five minutes of work to to go and like open the editor, find the code, like add a line into the uh, dictionary of these are the mutations we care about, and then like do a new release, and then like within a couple of minutes we have the new thing up and running. So I mean it's it's really from a software engineering perspective it's it's pretty straightforward and not a lot of work. So I mean that's. It's nice because it's a side project, right? So it's um, it's an important side project, but uh, it's also something I'm I'm happy that I don't need to devote too much of my time to this.
I think if I can add one thing before uh, before we end is is actually the scalability. I, I'm a little sad that I completely forgot to talk about that. But as Kai mentioned, like this is like one sample costs uh, a fifth of five samples, and it costs five times as much to run twenty five samples. So all the other systems they don't scale particularly well. You need a minimum amount of samples to press start on an Illumina machine. But but this really you can take whatever amount of samples you want and it scales completely linearly and it's dirt cheap. So that's all the time we have for today. We've been talking about SARS-CoV-2 and a new method for identifying variants of concern using Sanger sequencing. Welcome to 1995. <laughs> I want to thank Kai and Tui for joining us today and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. <laughs>